You're welcome to expect whatever you want. I'm not telling you you have to lower your expectations or raise your expectations, but I'm telling you that once you're bringing expectations, you you are now responsible for them, right? So if you bring certain expectations that the marriage can't fulfill, you'll be disappointed. If you bring expectations that the marriage can fulfill, you'll be better off. Okay, Kurt. So you've been married for like 21 years. Is that right? 21 years. That's correct. Okay. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you where you stand on this. Are there demands that you and your wife put on the marriage that are appropriate for what the two of you bring to the table? Demands are an interesting way of thinking about it, right? It's the expectations that we have. And we've been married a long time and we know each other. And when Eli was talking about, you know, it's weird to say that your best friend, you're married to your best friend, but I do feel that I'm married to my best friend. That piece of it, so those demands that we make on each other are are pretty reasonable, in my opinion. We get along really well on that. And we understand each other. Um, and so we do know too, when people, when, when Aaron is stressed or when I'm stressed, there's a third sense that comes into play that says, oh, you're stressed today. I will take some of this onto me that I would normally have, you know, that you would normally be taking on and vice versa. So I think that's there. All right. I'm going to reverse this and, and push it on you. What about with you and Katie? <laughs> okay. I guess turnabout's fair play. Uh, I'd say the answer is definitely yes. You know, our approach is uh, we don't feel like there's really any demands because of feeling really balanced. Now, there are demands that in reality, there are certainly things that we have expectations about for each other and for the relationship, but it never feels that way. Uh, It's sort of, uh, and it's really great to hear you know, our guests actually talk about relationships in that way, because it feels like we're getting kind of a free role, you know, for the future, you know, like l- very little downside and lots of upside for, for our future, because we've only been married five years. Like, well, very good. All right. And this might be a good time to let listeners know that this is Behavioral Grooves with co-host Kurt Nelson and me, Tim Houlihan. So our guest for this episode is Eli Finkel. He's a professor of social psychology at Northwestern University who studies interpersonal attraction, marriage, conflict resolution, and how our social relationships influence our goal achievement. Eli got our attention because of his latest book, The All or Nothing Marriage, and some of the very important tips he has to share about how to make the best of a relationship during a global pandemic. Let's listen. And in, and in fact, it, it's interesting, like I'm not a, a particularly religious person, nor am I even a Christian, but but that idea that I think, you know, Jesus really um, uh, taught us, right, about the, the, you know, kindness and tolerance and don't judge others, like th- that is, th- those are those are very, very good principles for relationships, especially when they're under duress. Eli shared a historical perspective on marriage that was instrumental in understanding how we got to where we are today and why marriage is so much more complicated for some people than it has ever been. It was a terrific conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Yeah, but uh, before we head into our conversation with Eli, please join other groovers in support of our mission to bring behavioral grooves to all the sentient beings outside of our solar system. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we, we, we don't... Um... We're not here for sentient beings outside of our solar system. I'm sorry, that was um, that was the the wrong script. Um, <laughs> our mission is definitely Earth focused, right? 
Okay. I, I don't know who wrote that script, but we're here. All right. And, and here's the real deal. We'd like you to join other Groovers who are supporting us on our Patreon site. And we'd like to do a special shout out to Nancy who joined us this week at a two latte per month level. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah. Thank you, Nancy. And we are grateful for your support and all the other Groovers who have made pledges to, to our, our site at Patreon. Uh, but now let's get back to our show. Okay. We invite you now to sit back with a healthy dose of relationship expectations and enjoy our conversation with Eli Finkel. Eli Finkel, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for having me. We are awfully glad to have you here, and we want to start with a speed round. So would you rather learn a new instrument or a new language? A new language. Terrific. Ah, Okay. Did anything come to mind, just out of curiosity? Spanish, probably. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I I am the typical American, and I know know, uh, English, and that's it. I would love (laughs) to learn a new language as well. So... um, all right, second second question. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite sports star or favorite musician? Favorite uh, hmm, favorite musician. Okay. Excellent. That's, you had some you had some hesitation there. Was some hesitation, there. Yeah. I did briefly yeah. think about Michael Jordan. That one would have been fun too, uh-huh. but uh didn't win the day. Yeah, well, you are you are in that Chicago area where he kind of yeah. is 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 ruler there. So there you yeah. go. All right. Would you prefer to travel with a set itinerary or no itinerary? A set itinerary. All right. Excellent. All right. Have the factors that make a good marriage changed um, from the Middle Ages to today? Oh, yeah. Um, the things that we're looking for are, are radically different from what people used to look for. And, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting about this topic is how little clue we have about the nature of those changes. Well, I would love to hear more about that. I think our listeners would, too. So can you kind of expand a bit? So what are some of those differences and, and what aren't we getting? Well, uh, you know, I am a I am a social psychologist, so we we do studies like we bring people into our social psychology lab and we video record them and code their behavior and follow them over time. But one of the things I've done over the last few years is is gotten myself uh, familiar with also the history and the sociology, the economics of marriage, and I myself have learned a lot that I didn't know. So. Um, in America, for example, the historians and sociologists tell us that um, there's basically been three major eras of marriage. Um, one from the colonial era till about 1850 or so, and and that was what I like to call the pragmatic era. Um, and it's it's hard for those of us today to wrap our heads around what what life must have felt like um, in 1800, for example. The you know it's not like somebody went off to work and somebody stayed home. I mean the you know the farmhouse was the work and the home. Anyway, then the uh, around 1850, the Industrial Revolution hits. There's this big 
a glut of jobs in in the urban centers and and those uh, factories basically serve as magnets for people from other countries and people from urban uh, from rural areas and so what you have for the first time is a bunch of um, young people who are geographically and economically independent of their parents and so rather than focusing on how do we run a farmhouse together and literally produce the food clothing and shelter that the family is going to need increasingly people are interested in marrying for love they take this mm. independence that they get and they say look it, it, this is this is the era where people start to marry for the personal fulfillment of the spouses. That that becomes a major consideration, which it wasn't before. And then you fast forward that that you know that started around 1850, re really reaches its peak around 1950 with you know Leave It to Beaver and all that stuff. And and <laughs> you know this is the this is the crowning moment of the idea that there's a breadwinner, homemaker, love-based vision, and everybody thought this was going to make people happy that this is what people wanted. And then in the post-war era in America, suddenly there was enough money that even a high school educated man, boy, could graduate from high school and pick up a union card and support a modest lifestyle in the suburbs. Um, and it turned out that so, so in 1950s, they basically achieved it. And when they thought they achieved the thing that was going to make everybody happy. They discovered that it mostly made people unhappy. Um, and then you get to the new version. The, the, the current era starts around 1965 or so. Um, so if the first one is this pragmatic era focusing on really survival stuff, and the second is the love era, post-1965 and up until today, you have the, the self-expressive era where we oh. still care about love, but it's no longer sufficient. And so in contrast to 1950, today it wouldn't be that weird to hear somebody say, look, Dave is a wonderful man and a good father and I love him and I know he loves me, but I feel totally stagnant in this relationship and I'm not gonna stay like that for the next 30 years. And so the idea becomes that marriage is not only a means of, of feeling and expressing and receiving love, but it is also a means of pursuing our voyages of self-discovery and personal growth and that um, the marriages that do that are particularly fulfilling and those that don't are disappointing, even though 50, 75 years ago, they, they would have been totally adequate. Well, and it it seems like the, I don't know, the, the, the general belief, I think, would probably still be more in that we we marry for love. And it I don't know if we've actually, as a society, have have come to the understanding that there's this uh, self-expression component of that. Are, are you finding that? Or is that just me and my naivety of, of being a 50-some-year-old a guy still thinking back from, you know, when I was a kid? No, I agree with you that that the narrative is is still largely revolving around love, but but we can contrast this, right? So, um, the nature of that love is is a little different. Like, can you imagine a 1950s couple getting up and and saying to each other, you know, you're my best friend? I mean, that's just not the way people mm -hmm. thought. But I think more to the point is, as they get up there and and make their vows. Did they write their own vows in the 1950s? Uh -huh. No, because marriage wasn't about that. It wasn't about our unique specialness and the unique properties of this relationship and you as a special person, unique person, I as a special, unique person, and the way that we sort of complete each other and, and help each other grow. Um, and so I agree with you that, that the cultural narrative doesn't revolve around, you know, sort of clunky phrases like self-actualization or self-expression. <laughs> to some degree, I think it does revolve around things things like personal growth. Um, but but there's, a, there's a, even though the lexicon hasn't changed as much as the, the ethos has changed, as much as the value yep. system has changed, um, there certainly has been a significant shift in what people were looking for in the 1950s marriage, which also was very much based on love, and marriage today, which is based on love, but oh yeah, a lot of other sort of psychological, personal growth type of things as well.
So in the historical register of, of relationships, I, I go back to Romeo and Juliet, or even before that, Tristan and Isolde, right? These are ostensibly love-driven relationships. Where do they fit into this this overall history? Well, I mean, Romeo and Juliet fit six feet under the under the ground, and, 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 yeah. and the reason why they fit there is because love wasn't a reason to get married. I mean, in, in, you know, people debate whether whether Romeo and Juliet was actually sort of in the comedy vein for Shakespeare or the tragedy, but you know, certainly content-wise, it's more tragedy than comedy. But but the thing to recognize about that is it's it's a morality tale. It's a it's a ah, it's a morality yeah. tale that is both. It, it is in fairness. It's not only well. It is both about the problems that come from you know longstanding hatreds, right? The Capulets and the Montagues hate each other. But it's also a story about you know love getting us in trouble. And look, the pages of Western literature are waterlogged with the these tragic stories. I mean, Anna Karenina dies, falls in love with Vronsky yeah. and dies in front of a locomotive and. Hester Prynne falls in love and then bears a scarlet letter. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. And it's really not until the current era, the self-expressive era, where you see stories of women who, you know, follow their hearts, but also go on these voyages of self-discovery and personal growth and that have potentially happy endings. And, and those are those have become the modern canon thing things like wild right that she goes off to mm. hike the pacific crest trail and she leaves her husband and then she ends up you know sort of falling in love at the end and and um eat pray love right it's a yeah. story of oh, how yeah. she's just stagnant i mean he's not a bad guy she's just not growing and she's not willing to stay in in a relationship like that and so she goes on this voyage of self-discovery and in the end of that book meets the man of her dreams i mean they eventually break up but that's not in that book <laughs> but, but, but I, but I want to underscore, just in case it wasn't clear, I want to underscore just how culturally weird, and by weird I mean new, that idea is that 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 it, that women would be in a relationship with a fully decent man, that that she will have committed to marriage, and that she will feel like he's decent and loving and lovely, and I feel stagnant, and I'm going to leave this marriage, go on this voyage of of discovery, who am I, and then and then have this sort of happy ending where I can achieve this new deeper self through a different sort of relationship, a new sort of relationship. Those women would have been scalded in the final pages of, of the books in all previous eras. That's fascinating. And again, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm not the historian on this, but there have been some revolutionary uh, uh, works. And, and again, you think about like Abigail Adams or a Martha Washington mm -hmm. and some of the letters that you, you they've, they've, they've shown to, to, to see this. And you can kind of sense that, right? That, that there, they were, uh, pragmatic, right? It was running the, the the farm when when John is gone, and kind of making sure that things go on uh, as as those happen. And so, less there's not the, a lot of romantic talk in those. It's it is very much business talk, and how are we how are we going to survive? And I, I guess you know, having read that and now thinking about this in this perspective, I never put those two together. And I think it's a interesting way of of compartmentalizing this and saying, hey, this is how we've we've shifted in our our beliefs and our views. Yeah, and and I you know I appreciate you bringing up examples like that because I think those examples underscore um, two different points. One is the point that you're making, which is that marriage for them was was about many things, but first and foremost, it was about these very pragmatic circumstances. But there's a second thing in there, which is of course people preferred to love their partner. 
right? It wasn't mm-hmm. like before the love-based era, they were indifferent about whether they loved their partner <laughs> or whether the sex was good. I mean, th- those were definitely wonderful things that you could have in a marriage. It just it just wasn't the point. Um, and and mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the best historical examples, if we're talking about sort of famous people, so... so Abraham Lincoln was born about two centuries ago. He was born in 1809, and he was born into a one-room, dirt floor, log cabin. He had an older sister and his parents, so the four of them shared that one room. And when um, when a, th- a third kid came along but died in childbirth, and, was Abra- and when Abraham was nine, his mom died, and when he was still a teenager, his only remaining sibling died giving birth to a stillborn kid. And I, I bring that up not just because of, you know, it's an interesting anecdote about Abraham Lincoln, but that wasn't that weird, right? It mm-hmm. was, they were yeah. more unlucky than the average early 1800s family on the, you know, in Indiana and Illinois. Um, but that life was precarious and fragile. And in an era like that, do you think people felt comfortable saying like, you know, look, um, Dave's a wonderful provider and, and you know, clearly a man of God, but I don't feel this sense that he's going to sort of bring out the best in me in terms of my, you know, self-expression or, or, or even, even just love. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like it wasn't from, it's not that people didn't care. They did. And Abigail Adams and John Adams, so far as I can tell, had a beautiful loving marriage. But that wasn't yeah. the primary function of marriage. Those people, by the way, one other difference is those those were relatively wealthy people yeah. who could perhaps afford some things that most people, including Abraham Lincoln's parents, could not. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I, I have, um, you know, looked at some of the the history of, of, of our family and going back and seeing all of the, those records. And and what's always amazing to me is, A, the, the number of children that that people had back then and then the number of children that died in death and, and the mothers that died in, in those deaths, too. But then, like, they're marrying the, the wife's sister. Um, yeah. or their cousin. And so it's like this, it feels like weird today. Um, but I, I, obviously that wasn't so weird back in, you know, early 1800s, 1700s. So. Yeah. I mean, it's totally weird everywhere except pornhub.com. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, and, and for those listeners who go there, maybe they can they can share. But you know, uh, yeah, it does feel weird, doesn't it? Yeah. E- Eli, what got you interested in the topic? Well, I've been interested in how relationships work um, since I since before I knew that you could do it for a living. And one thing that was interesting <laughs> is is I, I became an academic relatively early. Like I was I was on the faculty at Northwestern already. Uh, by the time I did my 10-year high school reunion. And it was interesting telling people what I was up to, right? Like, it's like, oh, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? And I, I would say I'm faculty. And people who understood um, what faculty life is like don't ask, what do you teach? They ask, what do you study? And so when I got yeah. those sorts of questions, um, I said, well, I, I study relationships. I study how people become interested in other people, what what makes those relationships last, how they sustain passion over time. And it was funny seeing the responses because people said, we're like, of course you do. Of course that's what you ended up doing. <laughs> oh. um, because this, this stuff always interested me. And I sometimes wonder, like, are there people who aren't interested in this? It's like the most interesting topic I can imagine. <laughs> Well, you have to think about all of the the matchmaking uh, apps and and uh, things out there, right? And so, obviously, there's there's a, a big industry around this. Are you seeing any yeah. difference in in how you know computer generated matches are are being done today than than how people you know found each other in the past? And is it more effective or or isn't it? 
Oh my goodness! I mean, the, the, <laughs> um, it's been absolutely enormous. Um, so yeah, studying online dating and even speed dating, which was for a brief while a thing there before Tinder killed it. But um, yeah, I mean, but so so the brief history here is in 1995, Netscape Navigator comes out. You, the three of us, are old enough to remember this, although m many of your listeners yeah. might not be. Um, basically, the first Whatever. time that. <laughs> the first time that, you know, regular people discovered that there was a thing called the internet. And, you know, five minutes later, online dating sites start. So Match.com was one of the earliest. And and so the, they're one of the, you know, what I think of as the first generation of online dating sites. These are sites that, that basically pits themselves as supermarkets. They say, come on in and browse the wares. There's, you know, several hundred or several thousand people within a few miles of your zip code and just pick whichever one you like, um, which is a reasonable place to start and would have been a great way to do it, but but it turns out, and some of this research comes from our own lab, um, it turns out that we're not very good at telling who's compatible with us from a profile. <laughs> like you could you could sit there and read profiles forever. I mean, this is the way it used to work, that you would like sit there for hours and try to figure out who's compatible. Truth is, we need to, we need to meet these people to know. But then, um, you know, five years pass and 2000 comes and, and eHarmony launches, and this is the second generation where these websites don't pitch themselves as supermarkets. They don't say, look, there's hundreds or thousands of options, pick which, whichever is best for you. They, they pitch themselves as something close to real estate agents, right? Where they say, look, you know, we really know the area. You don't really want to trust yourself to sort of throw yourself out there and, and figure it out. We have the expertise and we can, we can find the people who are uniquely compatible with you. So maybe they only give you four names a day, for example. And that also was a reasonable idea, except that nobody yet has built an, an algorithm that works, despite whatever claims um, people make. And again, if, you're, if you want to hear about the research from our lab, I'm happy to tell you about it. But what this means is that the first two generations, pretty much all online dating sites, served a major function, which is that they introduced you to people you wouldn't otherwise meet. And that is an enormous value. But all the other value they claimed to bring was for nil. Up until um, the third generation came, and 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 again, the primary function here is to introduce people. But this is the the iPhone basically. So so in two thousand eight, uh, the second generation of the iPhone comes the App Store, and with the mm -hmm. App Store, we just carry around basically infinite potential romantic partners in our pockets or in our purse, um, and and they don't really claim as much. They don't claim that like you can really learn who's compatible from a profile. If anything, they go the other way. It's like a big photo that you swipe left or swipe right on. And they, they don't claim that they have some algorithm that's going to find the right person for you. But what they added back that I appreciated was a was a, a sense of, of spontaneity that you could just say, like, I'm out and I've had a couple of drinks and I wonder if there's someone fun and you could swipe right on someone and maybe even meet up later that evening. And, and again, given that really the best thing that these things can offer is introducing you to people you otherwise wouldn't have met, making that process as efficient as possible is, is a real service. And, and by and large, the apps have... Um, have dominated since that point, including the old places are now basically functioning as apps. So uh, the the idea of uh, obviously when I was in that age of of looking, you know, for romance and, and different things, and you going to the bar and having to work up whatever courage it is that that I right. didn't have to go and, right. and talk to somebody face to face. These yeah. apps now are, are making that reducing that friction, right? Because I can just yes. I, it's easy to swipe and because then they swipe yes. back and all right, I know this. So, yes. so that's the 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 benefit of, of some of this. Oh, it's enormous. It's an enormous service. I, I sort of feel like 
you know, in some of the conversation, I, I, I feel like heterosexual men get a bit of a bum rap on this stuff because we, we deserve a lot of the criticism that we get for being gauche or overly forward or whatever. But but I sort of wish there were a couple years where, you know, for all heterosexual initiations, it had to happen from women to men, just so that, that men yeah. can get a sense of what it's like <laughs> to be asked all the time. But women could get a sense of what it's like to try to to try to do that and and you're exactly right that one of the massive advantages of these sites is they solve some of the very early friction problems one mm-hmm. one friction problem being is this person single yeah. um like maybe maybe somebody's at a bar that doesn't mean she wants someone to come up and chat her up right but maybe she does and and so you have to play this guessing game that leaves a lot of ambiguity and and so any system like speed dating or online dating or swiping anything like that 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 basically just says we've both opted into the pool where we're both open in principle to the possibility of being chatted up um, or chatting someone up that, that, that is a very very big perk of the new system yeah. yeah. You mentioned uh, the lab and you're talking about Northwestern's Relationship and Motivation Lab, uh, which is the RAM Lab, which is, I think, yeah. an awesome name, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> tell, us, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things that you're maybe that you're working on now or things that you've discovered that you thought were particularly, uh, particularly valuable and um, impactful to our world. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll give you sort of a, a few, maybe little examples of, of the sorts of works work we do. So, again, um, back when speed dating was really emerging and, and prominent, we actually ran. Um, I emceed personally a bunch of speed dating events for Northwestern undergraduates. Um, who knew they were they were signing up to find love for science? And um, <laughs> and I mean, I, they they did. In fact, it was funny because you know some of the videos we watched, they would they sort of used it as an excuse, like ah, for I'll do anything for science, right? But um, uh, yeah, so right, yeah, rationalizing exactly. this idea. I, I, yeah, I'm only doing this for science, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, there, it's only for the greater good. Um, but for example, <laughs> here's the here's the sort of with speed dating data. Let me let me give you an example. So let's consider a heterosexual speed dating event and and illustrate the sorts of questions and questions that you can answer that you almost can't answer with any other method. So let's say there's an there's a question of let me start basic. Jenny has a crush on Jeff. Why is that? Well, the usual explanation we get to is is that there's some like, chemistry, some sort of compatibility thing happening between Jenny and Jeff. But statistically, but also conceptually, there's there's two totally plausible alternatives. One is Jenny tends to have a crush on everybody. The other is mm-hmm. all the women tend to have a crush on Jeff. And if we only study one individual or even one dyad, one pair of individuals, we, we don't really know. We can't disentangle them. But if I've introduced, which I did at Northwestern regularly, if I've introduced 12 you know, heterosexual men to 12 heterosexual women, we know like everybody digs Jeff, like all the women love that guy. So then we can ask questions like above and beyond how much everybody loves Jeff and above and beyond Jenny's tendency to like the guys she met, is there something special there? And it's only that way that you can start getting at chemistry. Or here's another example of something you can do with speed dating data that you can't do with most other sorts of data. So so because everybody's rated everybody, you can ask uh, this sort of age-old reciprocity question, like, do we like people who like us? Like, if, if I find out somebody likes me, do I like that person more? Um, and th- th- But the fact is, there's two ways of asking that question. One is, if we know that somebody just likes everybody, do we like that person more? And the other is, if we know that, or we get a sense that that person likes us more than she likes the rest of the men here, 
do we like her more? And because we've got these ratings of everybody, we can actually disentangle those two things. And it turns out that the first effect is negative. That is, to the degree mm. that the woman tended to like everybody, I don't tend to like her. But to the degree that she liked me more than she liked everybody else, I like her more than I liked everyone else. Um, so that's an example. We, we, we also, so speed dating is fun for initial attraction stuff. We also do um, work with existing long-term relationships. So so one, one of our studies, we um, did a longitudinal marriage study where we studied, we followed people every four months for two years, and um, we randomly assigned half of them to like adopt a different mindset about conflict. So we said, when you have conflict, we'd like you to think about it from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for everybody. And then we followed them over the course of uh, that study. And we found that people who had been trained to think about conflict in this sort of broader, more inclusive way ended up having more satisfying, more trusting, and even more passionate relationships. Oh, so cool. that's that's a couple couple examples of the sort of stuff we do in the lab. That that is that is just fascinating. Um, that and and do you think that that's relevant to the the particular era that we're in? That this idea of framing conflict from this this objective third party is wouldn't wouldn't have been relevant to somebody in the colonial era, for instance. You know, I think so. Um, I think so, although I could imagine that like sorts of studies that would be even more uniquely tailored to the co- to the current era, right? So conflict is indeed something that always existed um, in relationships. People who were married in 1600 or 1800 had to navigate conflict in their relationship and they could do it in a better or worse sort of way. But um, but yes, the, the sort of quality of the relationship itself wasn't a particularly important consideration circa, you know, Abraham Lincoln's parents' day. Um, it is yeah. much more so today. And our tolerance for being in a relationship that isn't particularly satisfying also has gone down. But there are other examples, like for, you know, if I wanted to think of a, a particularly relevant example for today, maybe I would use a manipulation closer to, you know, as you as you interact, try to think of ways that the two of you can grow together, to think of ways that the two of you might be able to bring out the best versions of each other. And that would be something that would be especially relevant today, or, or at least would be defined differently today than in the past, where maybe it would have been defined mainly in terms of, you know, closeness with God or something like that. Yeah. So, when you think about compatibility, when you think about, all right, so in these matchmaking, uh, you know, speed dating or, or in the, in, you know, obviously the, the uh, online or apps that, that, that are doing, are there certain things about compatibility that come out? Are there certain attributes that people should be looking for in other people? Or is that more idiosyncratic and, and, you know, is it dependent upon the individual? I mean, what, what have you found? Basically, the latter. Um, yeah. You know, and and I have to admit, I was surprised by this. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I love what I study. Um, you know, we we because we use empirical methods to test ideas about relationships. We often call it the discipline relationship science. It's based on the principles of science as applied to what makes relationships work or not work. And I would love to be imperialistic about it. I would love to say relationship science can solve all of these problems. This is one <laughs> I don't think we can solve. So so the the problem that that's a place like eHarmony bit off for itself, they didn't fail because they aren't good enough. They failed because I don't think that question is possible to answer. So so think about Mm -hmm. it this way. There are basically, you know, our field, we basically have three different types of information that we can use if we're trying to 
figure out, you know, does a relationship last or break up or is it happy or unhappy? One type is like individual information. So what are my demographics? What are my, what is my personality? Things that you can get from one individual in isolation, even things like, yep. what do you, do you care about having a, you know, a physically attractive or, you know, kind hearted partner? These are all in the category of individual information. The second type of information you can have is like, what circumstances do we confront? For example, we were going along and then COVID happened, or we were going along and then a, and then a cancer diagnosis hit, or I lost my job, or I got promoted, right? Or or now I have a new job and it's amazing, but it's in San Francisco. Like those sorts of things also really matter. You can call those like external circumstances. And then the third type is things about us. How do we, like if, if you know, if we're being video recorded, what is the nature and tenor of the exchange that the two of us have? Or now that I know you, like, what are my feelings about you, right? But those second two types of information, the external information and the us as a couple information are unavailable to like an eHarmony or any really matchmaking service, right? Because mm -hmm. the whole point is knowing what we know about you guys as individuals, just that first type of information, can we figure out who's going to fit together? Like it's like a jigsaw puzzle logic that if only we could find the the puzzle piece that fits with your puzzle piece, then they'll, they'll be a happy marriage. And that idea is great. And I would love to claim that relationship science can do it. I don't actually think this is how relationships work. That is they're, they're like a uh, much, much more so a, a process that emerges. And I don't know if you guys have read, have you read um, Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fantastic, Fantastic book. Okay. So, so you may, so you may recall he gives interesting examples. Like, so one of the examples he he gives is Halley's comet, right? Like this Halley guy, astronomers, like, wait a minute, all those comets that people have seen over the last twelve hundred years, I think it's the same comet. And so in seventeen oh five, he says that in seventeen fifty eight, you're going to see it. And oh my God, he was right. And this is one of the great early moments of of prediction. And so we're pretty good with comets. We know almost exactly when Halley's comet's going to come back and how much mass it'll have when it does. Um, then there are things like meteorology, right? Which were, were difficult, but we're getting better. So, so I think like 30 years ago, if you had 72 hours to predict where a hurricane would hit, um, make landfall, you needed like a hundred mile error radius, like a hundred mile span where it might hit. And now that's down to like 20 or 25 miles. We've just gotten better at that. Right. But seismology, that is when are earthquakes going to hit? We suck. We basically can't do it. And we know that there'll be more earthquakes in San Francisco than in New York, but any meaningful, actionable information that there's going to be an earthquake now, or given that there was an earthquake, there's going to be a big aftershock. We are basically no better than than noise. And I yeah. think that at this point anyway, and maybe in the long run, relationship science in terms of the ability to predict who's going to be compatible in advance is much more like seismology than it is like meteorology. So, uh, and, I, and forgive me, I can't remember the name of the researcher, but I believe it was out of Seattle where they were doing couple, couple, looking at how uh, couples communicated together. And, yeah, John and they, they did, there we go. Thank oh, you. Yeah. 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 And again, some of the, the, the research there that if I remember correctly is, you know, after five minutes, they had a pretty good indication of, is this couple going to last or not? So how does that fit into this type of, of, of assessment? Well, I have two thoughts on that. One is remember that, okay. that's, that that's the third type of information. 
that's dyadic yep. information. So, so I, I am in in the general spirit of the claims that John Gottman wants to make. I, I'm totally on board, right? If if you can study <laughs> two people and actually watch their dynamics together and get their reports of how committed they are to each other, then sure, you can definitely use that. Again, is that useful to like an eHarmony? I don't think so, because once you know that that other person exists, you're no longer being matched with somebody you're unaware of, right? That it's like mm. literally useless to anybody trying to do what they were trying to do. But but. I also find that the claim, so sometimes he'll come out, and I admire John Gottman a lot, but sometimes he'll come out with a claim that he can predict divorce with 94%. So he can, but he can't use that same algorithm and predict a 94% accuracy with a new sample, right? And and this gets Uh, a little technical, but the basic idea is if you now know, like you've collected a million observations, like physiological observations and behavioral observations and self-report and all that sort of information, and then you fast forward 15 years and you figure out who divorced and who didn't, then you can go back and say, knowing what we now know, can we, you know, throw a bunch of variables in that can tell us who divorced and who didn't? Um, and they can do that with 94% accuracy, but it's not that useful of a thing to be able to do. What you really want to do is say, now that we have that, you know, algorithm, all those variables and these weightings, can we use it on a new sample? And the fact is they can do better than chance. There's no question about right. that, but nobody's, nobody's anywhere near 94% accuracy on those things. Okay. You said in the book, uh, uh, or you you stated that the book was not written for conservatives. It was not written for liberals explicitly, right? But it seems like just writing the book has brought up political issues. Um, Yes, it has. What's your take on this? Well, I tried to to avoid them in the book. I mean, it's um, it in a sense, it's you know, look, it's it's a conservative book in that it sees a lot of merit in this particular lifestyle. That is people deciding to get married and raise children in that. Like I'm just looking at, you know, correlational data, but my impression based on the evidence to date is that that is a particularly promising option for, you know, financial well-being, for educational well-being. I understand, of course, all the sort of confounds and who gets married and, and um, you know, there's other variables too. So in that sense, it's a conservative book that tells people like, look, assuming you want to choose this lifestyle, I get why you would want to. It's it's um, correlated with all sorts of nice life outcomes. Here's a way to do it. Like here are some, it's not, it's not top down really, but it says here are some helpful ways to think about this stuff and ways that you guys might as a couple try to improve your relationship and make it stronger. So in that sense, it's it's arguably a conservative book. It is a very liberal book in the sense that, A, it views this as a lifestyle choice, that it doesn't say that single people are bad or wrong or evil or whatever. It says, look, and that's also, you may choose that too. Um, it's also liberal in some radical ways. Like it, it, it's very serious in considering that maybe consensual non-monogamy is a reasonable option for some people, not for most people. I'm certainly not like an advocate for that as some sort of default, but that, that there may well be non-traditional ways of uh, of living our marriage that are in fact beneficial for the relationship and also beneficial for the children or whatever else the other considerations beneficial for society. And for this, I guess I would say that that maybe the least conservative thing about the book is the general observation that there isn't one way to do it. And when mm. when the Republican National Committee comes out every four years and says, look, for time out of mind, marriage has always been between one man and one woman. I'm like, did you read your Bible? Like the, the, it's, I mean, there's all sorts of polygamy in the Bible, and and if you look cross culturally and across historical times, there's many, many, many ways to do it. And so the book is very open minded to the idea that no one cultural moment has ever figured out the absolute way for everybody to live a happy marriage. And it says if you want to do, if you want to learn about marriage as an institution, the book should be interesting at an intellectual level, but 
also, if you want to use the book to try to make this thing go well, like our own personal marriage, like are there ways, are there things that, that, that are science supported that might be useful? All right. So now you've teed this up. (laughs) What are some of those hints that you can give uh, Tim and me who have both been, you know, uh, I've been married over 20 years and Tim is second marriage, uh, you know, but (laughs) what can we do and what can our listeners take out of this uh, to make sure that we're, we're, we're doing this as best possible based on, on the science around this? You know, it's fun, Kurt, as you were launching into that and, and you got to the number 20 and I almost thought you were going to say times, right? You were like, well, useful information. I've been married 20. Um, and I was just going to say, if you've been married, yeah, if you've been married 20 times, you're doing something right. Like that must be some type of right. Um, I'm, I'm trying so, to beat Liz Taylor. There you go. So Yeah, you know. well, I think you've tripled her. Um, no, what, what did you get? Did you get to eight? I don't know what you got. To. I, I don't. You got anyway, to you're on the right yeah. number. Yeah, it was a lot though. Yeah, but yeah. one of them was like twice. I don't know. Okay. Um, so so the, the front end of the book, I mean, if, if you guys have had a chance to look it over, the, the front end of the book, yep. maybe if you divide it into thirds, the front end is like, well, what is this thing? And like this thing called marriage and like, how do we get here and what properties does it have? And and, and so, sort of, it's like a, a dissection or a reverse engineering of, of where we are today in terms of marriage and America. And then this the second section of the book is like, all right, well, if, if what we're looking for for marriage is these sorts of you know, very sort of self-expressive, love-based, but also self-expressive sorts of things, then that has certain implications in terms of how much time and emotional energy we invest in cultivating the relationship. Cultivating the relationship wasn't that important if you weren't really looking to it for a deep sense of emotional or psychological fulfillment. But if you want a deep emotional connection, which people wanted by the 1850s, the 1950s, then you at least needed to learn how to cherish each other, which is, I think, the sort of the dominant word you might have heard, that we cherish each other from across a very different divide where women were in one world and men were in another world, but they sort of, you know, had this togetherness ethos. And then nowadays, it's, it's yes, you need to understand and love each other, but also it would sure be nice if we understood each other's unconscious blocks that prevent us every time we're close to having success and can walk us through those and push us when we need to be pushed, but support us when we need to be supported, almost like a therapist. And so... So I think we've arrived. So so that's the front end of the book, and the middle end, the middle part is like, well, how are we using our time? And and the the basic idea behind the the title of the book, the all or nothing marriage, is that we've arrived at a moment when the best marriages are better than the best marriages of any earlier era, even while the average marriage is getting worse. And the reason why you get that divide is that. People are disappointed today with a marriage that would have been okay in an era where we weren't trying to have that level of deep psychological connection. But for those of us who are able to get that connection, for those of us who have the sort of connection with our spouse that fulfills these sorts of new expectations, we can connect in ways that were out of reach in an era where people weren't even trying. And so this logic, all of that, what I just said, sort of is a supply and demand way of thinking. It says, you're welcome to expect whatever you want. I'm not telling you you have to lower your expectations or raise your expectations, but I'm telling you that once you're bringing expectations, you you are now responsible for them, right? So if you bring certain expectations that the marriage can't fulfill, you'll be disappointed. If you bring expectations that the marriage can fulfill, you'll be better off. So so on the, the, the demand end of supply and demand is the things that we're asking of our marriage. On the supply mm-hmm. end are the things that we're 
investing to make sure that the marriage works. And that those do include things like compatibility in a sense, but more importantly, they include things like emotional effort and time and, you know, real investment and in learning how to listen to each other and, and be sensitive to each other's sexual needs and all sorts of other needs. Um, and so the book talks, there's like a whole chapter on if you're trying to go all in and have one of these really deep self-expressive marriages, what are the things you can do? That's one section of the book. There's another chapter in the book that says, what are ways that we can ask less? Like we kind of find ourselves chronically disappointed and they're in these particular ways, how can we ask less of those things? And then there's one other section that that that's also in the supply and demand worldview, but that says, are there quick and dirty things that we can do, relatively easy sorts of things that we can do that don't take that much time, that aren't going to make a bad marriage, a great marriage, but that, that can help us from spiraling in a negative way during those times when we just don't have the bandwidth to invest a lot. And I call those love hacks. All right. Yeah. So, so what's a love hack? Well, yeah. I gave one example. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, brass tacks here. So, so I gave one example <laughs> earlier, right? So, so, so one thing that was neat about that that study I mentioned earlier, when when you're trying to think about conflict in the relationship from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for everybody, what we actually did in that study is we we um, had all 120 couples write about conflict at every wave, but then we had the the 60 couples that we randomly assigned to this this love hack, this uh, you know third-party perspective intervention to write for seven minutes three different times over the second year of, of the study. So, so you're writing for a total of 21 minutes. You're trying to think about the conflict from the perspective of the neutral third party who wants the best for everybody. And so that is a love hack. And the reason why it's a love hack is it's something that you can do by yourself. It doesn't require a lot of investment and it's, and it's efficient. You can do it by yourself and it doesn't take a lot of time. And so that's a love hack. But there are plenty of others. I mean, one of the major things that, 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 relationship science teaches us is how much of our relationship experience is in the stories that we tell. Even things that seem extreme, like my partner slept with somebody else, really, it's a story, right? It's like, what does that mean to you? And the meaning that you apply to that situation has everything to do with how it affects you, how it affects your partner, how it affects your relationship. And so, you know, there's a lot of work in our field on something called attributions. That is the explanations that you develop for why your partner did something. So my partner just brought me a surprise gift. It's possible to interpret that in a negative way. What did he do? Why is he doing this? Like this seems suspicious. Or or your partner's late for something that you, that that she knew was important to you. Well, there's a lot of reasons why your partner might be late. It might be that she was trying as hard as she could and got stuck with some last minute demand by her boss, or it might be because she's an inconsiderate jerk. But but the fact is the explanation that you offer is going to be the major determinant of how you feel about it and how it affects your relationship, not the objective circumstances. It's really the explanation that's crucial. And, and so I talk in the book about ways that we can we can adopt more relationship promoting sorts of explanations. So given, uh, and thank you, th th those are those are fantastic. Given COVID and, and the lockdown that we're, we're under you talk about some of this the you know that second part of these uh of the types of data we have and the circumstances and various different things how are you seeing or are, are you able to research any of this or, or even just you know kind of your your hypothesis around what this is doing from a relationship perspective how, how are people coping with this and uh what's going on yeah i don't know of the best data but i but i'm certainly happy to to, to chime in on, on my best guess about about yeah. what's going on these days. So um, 
I think on average, people are going to need to capitalize on asking less. So we talked about the supply and demand idea. This, for most of us, isn't the time to think, mm-hmm. how can we make this truly spectacular? It is, you know, and maybe this applies especially to people with children at home that, that we're now like homeschooling despite both of us working or whatever. It's like, this is a time that's going to have a lot of challenges. And so if you're having sex less frequently than you otherwise would, or if um, you know, you're just too tired to really engage with each other in the evening, cut yourself some slack. And the book talks a lot about n- not necessarily expecting lowering expectations in perpetuity, but in terms of yeah. being strategic. Like when do we have the time, the emotional wherewithal to really invest in the relationship? And in those moments, do it. Like go all in and high expectations are terrific. But in those moments when we're worn out and the world is chaos and we just feel at the end of our ropes, just try to remember this is going to be rough for a bit and I'm going to be okay with that. Um, Let me just give one caveat. In principle, this quarantine is a windfall. And maybe especially for people who don't have kids at home, like in principle, how many of us six months ago, if you'd said, hey, you're going to get like six months where you're just going to be home together all the time and nobody's going to be commuting and like, you know, it might have been great. And I'm confident that there are some couples out there that are loving this and they're going through their Netflix queue and, and just having a great time together and, you know, reading books together and talking about them over dinner. Like I'm sure people are doing that. I just think it is, it is a hard time for many, if not most of us. And those of us in that situation, it's a great time to lower expectations temporarily. Well, to some degree, this is a return to pre-industrial revolution life. Yeah, you know Mm -hmm. when, right? I mean, we used to, we used to uh, before the industrial revolution, all the all the work and all the play and everything happened basically at the home. You know, the the forge for the blacksmith was was basically in the back of the house, and the seamstress just did her work right in the front room. So, so in some ways, doesn't it kind of match with our DNA? We've got a lot of history of of just being with our spouses, being with our family. Well. Well, the DNA thing is interesting because through most of human history, we were nomads, um, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the 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 thing you're talking about is really like the agricultural era, which which yeah. again the, the last ice age ended maybe eleven thirteen thousand years ago, and then slowly throughout the world over the next ten thousand years, agriculture took over. But but so so let's skip the the DNA stuff because that gets that's like above my pay grade. But um, <laughs> but you're right. There there are serious ways in which we are hearkening back to kind of an earlier era. And instead of focusing on like going out for romantic dinners, I mean, like those things kind of aren't, at least in our country, right? They're kind of not happening right now for obvious safety reasons. And the safety considerations do push us back toward um, you know, an earlier way of, of thinking about these things, yeah. like making sure that we're literally physically safe is a much higher consideration for the average American today than even six months ago. Um, yeah. You know, there are still major differences, right? So we're sitting at home, but but in some sense, we're bored because in contrast to us having to grow the crops and like get the intransigent ox to do what he's supposed to do, like we, we now have to, you know, we just sort of like, you know, hit up on our phone and have some food delivered. Again, this is for people with enough money to do it of course. Um, yeah. so, so in a sense, it's like a moment of existential anguish that wasn't the case when there was the urgency of farm life. Yeah. 
it, you bring up a really, you know, your point before of, of, Hey, your expectations during this time, you know, allowing some of the things to, to, to maybe be, be lowered at this. And it was interesting. We talked with professor Brad Shuck, who, who does a lot of work with, with organizations and, and he defined it almost as like it, within organizations, it's, it's giving your employees some grace, right? Yes. It, you know what? They're, they're under stress. They might be, you know, quick to trigger for some snaps and you just have to understand that you have to understand all of the the angst that they're under and I'm, I'm hearing the same type of thing with you saying look this is a time it can be very stressful particularly if you have kids and various different things so just have a little bit of grace with with your partner and, and give them that latitude uh, that is basically exactly right and and ideally with yourself too um yeah like again you, you don't want to overindulge yourself but that you know look most of us aren't going to be at our very best right now and um and you know that doesn't give us a right to take things out on our spouse but a little bit of grace for our kids our spouse ourselves is a great idea and and in, and in fact it, it's interesting like i'm not a, a particularly religious person nor am i even a christian but but that idea that i think you know jesus really um uh, taught us right about the, the you know kindness and tolerance and don't judge others like th that is th those are those are very very good principles for relationships especially when they're under duress. Yeah, I, I agree. I know Tim is is anxiously <laughs> wanting to ask musical questions here. So sure, hit me up. Uh, there you go. Okay, so we've we've discovered that uh, you do play some guitar. You have some familiarity, some interest in music. Uh, we won't have to go into how you know if, if you can play the lead to Stairway to Heaven. But uh, what's on your <laughs> playlist? What, what are you listening to now? And and has it changed uh, with with being in the lockdown or not? Well, it changed with having kids. Um, so uh, you know, my kids are like ten and seven, and and so the extent to which um, what's what's playing in our house or even in my life is is my own choice is much lower than it was. I am very much a creature of my adolescence, as is everybody else, and I I know that we all think that the music that we grew up with was the best, but I I happen to be correct. Um, <laughs> like I I turned sixteen in in nineteen ninety one, and that's that's the Nirvana. Nevermind album, that's Pearl Jam's debut, the 10 album, that's an amazing Alice in Chains album, Red Sh uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Chili Peppers, Screaming Trees. Wow. That was like an outstanding era for music. And I know that other people probably think that there was some other era that was better. And I'm willing to hear it for like maybe 1968 or something, but I'd put, 90, <laughs> I'd put 1991 up against most. I, I I would be in agreement right there that the late '80s, early '90s are 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 by far in in my top echelon, as Tim will often tell you tell me. So when yeah, you include um, late '80s, when you include late '80s, are you doing like glam metal, Bon Jovi, <laughs> no, or or like war, no, Warrant? I, I'm more I'm more doing. Oh, all right. So all right, there, there you have you, you've called me out on this. No, I am I'm actually not. I'm I'm thinking more of the Depeche Mode's, uh, the Cure. Uh, some some of those again when you think about some of the precursors to to uh, uh, you know Pearl Jam and some of those you know bringing in some of the, the rock but also some of that alternative aspects that they they, they brought together so yeah. synth rock synth rock, rock. I like to you know I I I have to admit I I did go see a Poison concert with my girlfriend back in the day and and you know so I've I've seen the big hair glam rock mm -hmm. uh, uh, concerts and. Every rose does to, have a thorn. <laughs> well, and, and, and obviously that's not the woman I married. So there you go. You can kind of see <laughs> where that, that leads to. 
So with that, let, let's just say thank you. <laughs> thank thank you so much for having me. Uh, Eli, so yeah, fascinating inf- insights. And uh, again, urge urge all of our listeners to go out and, and, and get the book, uh, you know, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. Uh, is there any other way? I mean, can people follow you on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it's Eli J. Finkel at on you know on Twitter, and yeah, um, keep an eye out. I, I definitely do tweet about relationship stuff, and um, if they're interested in learning about marriage or about how to have a better one, the the book is probably a good place to go. All right, well, fantastic, and thank you, and uh, again, fascinating stuff, and so keep up that great work. Thank you both. Have a good one. Hey, Groovers, welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Eli, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our old married brains. <laughs> well, here we, we are old and married. Oh. You know, that's that's how we work. But it works great. It, it does work great. We, uh, I will have to say, I, I we have lots of friends. Uh, and some of them are in really great relationships and marriages and others are not. Yeah. And I would, I, I, knowing you and Katie, I think you guys have a great relationship and I know me and Aaron have a great relationship. So yeah. I feel, I feel among the lucky ones, right? Yeah. I really do. I feel very lucky in that situation. Yeah. You guys uh, exude just a super uh, coolness together, like a real sense of sort of comfort when you're together that I, that is just really kind of infectious. Actually. I, I really, be with you I attribute that all to Aaron because <laughs> you know, I am definitely not anything but cool, right? Anything but cool right here. So it's all my wife. You know, we, we do have a lot to talk about with Eli, but I have to reflect that I've played hundreds of weddings over the years uh, in the ceremonies and reflect on the number of times when I've seen couples uh, come to, to the altar or come to, to state their vows that just look like a hot mess. You know, that just, it just looked now I, I haven't done any study on this, but there are some people that come together that just everything feels like it's just working, you know, not just from an operations perspective, but from a relationship perspective, like the way that they talk to each other, there's a tenderness and an openness and, and, and a caring approach that they have. And then there's some that on the wedding day, they're just at each other's throats. <laughs> How can make it. How the hell are they going to figure out how to make it? But it's it's interesting. So going back to when I got married 21 years ago, I remember vividly that you remember those those moments, right? But I remember vividly how nervous, how much of a hot mess I was, literally going up and my my groomsmen and it was was outside wedding and and it was starting to starting to rain like just a little drizzle and all the stuff and i'm just feeling freaked out probably showing it that on my face amazingly until until i saw aaron starting to walk down the middle of the aisle and then it was just like oh it was just like this whole world disappeared and it was just me and her and this was the right thing to do this was that moment when we were going to be together and it just felt good so i you know I understand the hot mess, but I got out of that hot mess, luckily for me. <laughs> we could tell wedding stories for like for the next hour. That could be fun. But there we go. <laughs> oh, no, we're not going to do that. We got to talk about Eli because we it was a wonderful conversation. We both loved it. And I wanted to ask you, what 
was maybe one of the most important things that you felt that we should groove on today? I don't know if this is an important thing to groove on, but I felt it was really interesting. So I loved the background of marriage and the three eras that we have this, this pragmatic era of, we just, we have to work the farm. And so let's do this. And if we get love out of it, Hey, that's a, that's a plus, right. Then to the era of, Ooh, we have free time and ability. And so now it's not just about pragmatism. It's about let's find that person who we love. And then this modern era where it's, it's, it's a love plus, right. Where it's, Yeah. Love plus, right? The idea that it's not just about being in love and being a good person and good good to each other, but the self-fulfillment. Are you helping me be the person that I want to be? And is this marriage making that more possible? Yeah. The big challenge is that our brains are still wired to that uh, pragmatic era, right? That That our DNA hasn't caught up to to this idea of thinking about our partner as being someone who is responsible for our self-fulfillment. And so it it, it reminded me of how we have biases and heuristics, uh, biases specifically uh, today that evolutionarily wise uh, really helped us, right? To help sustain us like like availability bias. Like if, if you knew, if you saw fruit, and that was that was good to eat, you know, forty thousand years ago. And you go back to it, and you see more fruits. Like, oh, this is a good place to, to hang out. We should we should camp here because I see lots of fruit and it's healthy. That's a good way of using availability. Um, today, it ends up showing up in you know me seeing lots of the examples of the new car that I just bought. It's like, oh my gosh, everybody's driving the same model that I just rolled off the the lot. It's like. That you know, it's the same function, but it doesn't really serve us in the same way um, as it did. Um, founded rationality, you know, forty thousand years ago, whew, much simpler life, you know, simpler, simpler decisions, things like that. Our marriages were simple. Our, our, our relationships, I should say, were simpler today. Way more complex, and and bounded rationality kind of works against us sometimes today. And so, so I think about how challenging it is. Thank God for the brain's plasticity to to help us deal with that. But damn it, it's really hard to to find that right partner, to find the balance, and 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 what Eli talked about this this supply and demand equilibrium. Uh, it's really challenging, I think. Yeah. Right. I, that's a fantastic way of thinking about this too. That have we evolved to live in the modern day marriage? you know, evolutionarily speaking, mm-hmm. maybe not. This is a new way and our brains haven't just caught up to that. So it it adds that added pressure on top of things. Well, do you think that we're, we're even, when we, when people are coming together today in relationships, do you even think that they're using words like I need you to help me in my path to self-fulfillment? Well, no, I think, as I mentioned in the in the interview, I don't think society is caught up with this new thing. We still believe marriage is about that 1950s model, leave it to beaver, love is everything. Yeah. And yet, when Eli started talking about this, it made absolute sense to me and was reflected in many of the relationships that I see as well as even my own. I sit there and I'm I'm looking at this and I'm 
think about my wife. And, and again, I think it had been in the past. It was a male dominated, you know, the woman gave up their self-fulfillment for the man's typically. And I don't want that to be happening in this. And I, you know, we, we do do things where, you know, helping her start her own business and being, you know, working to make those kind of trade-offs in who's doing what and when, so that she can be on different boards and do different pieces of that. It's not even, it's not even a question. It, it never pops up. It's like, yeah, sure. Let's you go do that. Cause that's important to you. I will stay home with the kids and do what we need to do. And then vice versa, when I have something that happens. And so I think it's that give and take that is vital in today's relationships that maybe not didn't occur or didn't necessarily make itself felt uh, in, in the past, or if it, it was felt, society didn't appreciate it. And so it was kind of a, not a social norm. Yeah. One thing I would like to see, Eli teed this up just a tiny little bit, is what would it be like if the roles were reversed? If all the men had to do was respond to the requests and women had to, to make the requests, women had to make the advances. I, I think that evolutionary wise, that would be nearly impossible to create. It's hard for me to imagine that that could actually happen. But there's a part of me I'd like to see what would it be like for men to suffer a little bit from, oh my God, would you stop? Would you just stop with the requests? Uh, and to have and have women feel, feel suffer a little bit from, oh man, I don't know if I should ask this guy, you know? Well, I get that, but I also think technology is changing this, right? So that was the other piece that we talked about, the the dating apps and how swiping right and swiping left. And I don't know because I don't have any clue how they work, which is the right one. And I always get it mixed up. But this idea that you're reducing that friction of trying to find that partner, trying to find that mate. And so I actually think that women are probably doing it a lot more. I think that there are probably uh, a whole cadre of women out there that are able to to make those advances. So I would probably disagree. I think that we as a species and the plasticity of the brain, as you mentioned earlier, the social norms that are adjusting that, I don't know if it's an evolutionary thing as much as it is a social thing. And so I think from that perspective, you know, we're changing. Yeah. I've read some research that it's highly cultural. There are cultures, uh, I think in Africa where women completely dominate, um, the, the, they, they have the, I'm going to choose, I'm going to select the man. I'm going to run the household. I'm going to go out and work. I'm going to do all this. Um, and it's a, a fairly simple tribal environment, but, but there are, uh, specific cultures where the norms are reversed from what Western civilization is used to. Well, my wife is watching uh, the new show that's out on Netflix, I believe, and it's this matching, you know, it's about Indian culture and the match uh, pieces that they have. And and I don't know, I haven't watched it, but she talks about it. it's It's interesting because it is these matriarchal, you know, older women who are setting up these, these relationships. And again, you have they're they're acting as an as a dating app right they're bringing these two people together and they get to choose but it's this interesting concept of who is in charge and you know the the matriarchal women probably have a better understanding of what makes a successful marriage 
than I think probably young idiot, you know, people like us, you know, when we were married. So. We were 22 years old or whatever. Okay. Uh, we wanted to talk about love hacks. Yes. What, yes. What, what was your most impactful love hack, love hack that uh, Eli brought up? Uh, so I like this idea of that third party perspective, the idea of, you know, having this third person view of the marriage and taking a look at that. And what he talked about uh, the, the journaling piece of this for seven minutes, a few times a year and bringing that in. I thought that was fantastic because I think there's a wonderful perspective that you can get if you try to take yourself outside of the relationship and put yourself as that third party, that objective viewer, because we often live within, we always live within our own mind, right? And we see things through our perspective and that's colored. That's colored by, you know, the, you know, um, a number of the heuristics that we have, a number of the intentions that we know we're having, but we assume others have no as well, but they don't. And same thing, vice versa. So all of that comes into play. That was really insightful for me. Yeah. Living in our, in our own mind can sometimes be a bad neighborhood. <laughs> so we, you know, <laughs> can I quote you on that? I want, that's an awesome quote. Living <laughs> in our own mind is sometimes a bad neighborhood. Um, do you, uh, can I, can I ask, uh, do you and Aaron have any tools or tricks or tips that, that you have for maintaining the relationship and keeping it, I don't know, fresh, alive? Uh, there are a few things. I, I think um, one is we have what we call an anniversary book. Um, we did this much more diligently at the beginning of our marriage and than we're doing lately, but Basically, on our anniversary or around our anniversary time, we go and we just reflect back on the year and we write it down and we talk about all the things that have happened to us, um, different pieces. Then we set forth what our expectations for the next year are and talk about some key milestones with, with other things. And what's really interesting about that year one, all right, it's interesting. It's, you know, first year of marriage and you do it year two. All right. That's kind of cool. But by year three, four, five, all of a sudden, you know, when you do it, you're looking back from year one and you're looking back at year two and you're looking back at year three and you're seeing this history of your life in front of you and how much you have done together and what that has meant. And it's just this wonderful reflection back into this world that you're sharing with the partner that you have. And it's just really is a wonderful piece. But now after 21 years, we have to take a lot more time because just going over yeah. one, 20 years of marriage and like, oh, remember this? Oh, you remember that? And you relive those memories. It's it, it takes a much longer time. It's not a dinner thing anymore. It's a half day event. So <laughs> pretty soon you'll, you'll need a weekend retreat just to get through the damn book. <laughs> we will. We will. Well, what about you? What What are some of the the tricks that you and Katie use? Well, for just regular kind of day in and day out, and we don't do this every night, but um, at bedtime, use 
uh, ask the question, what was, what was the most important things that happened to you today? One, two, three things. And important then doesn't say it needs to be good or it needs to be bad. It just whatever bubbles up. And that kind of allows, allows us to say, you know, oh man, this one thing really pissed me off and it was really irritating and this so-and-so at work and blah, blah, blah. And, or it's like, oh, you know, I was really, really glad that uh, you, you brought me, you know, lunch in the middle of the day because I was in the middle of meetings and I was hungry and I didn't have time to make a lunch and just, you know, so it's, it's an opportunity for gratitudes, but it's also an opportunity just to kind of release the crap that's, that's roiling around in our, that bad neighborhood of our brains sometimes. And, uh, and then like for, we, we use a kind of an interesting technique for dealing with, with, uh, well, it's, you know, we, we talked earlier about this. We're, we're not fighters, you know, that's right. That's not our thing, but we have disagreements sometimes. It's like we have very different perspectives on things sometimes, and so we we sit down and we face each other and we create this this bubble, this artificial bubble around us. We draw it with our with our hands, and then you start with what do we want out of the bubble? What are the things that we want to be able to have this conversation with without? And so we say guilt. Okay, well let's throw guilt out of the bubble and um, judgment. Okay, we don't want judgment in the bubble, so we're going to throw that out and. Um, false facts. We don't want false facts in the, you know, so that we do that. And then we say, what do we want to bring into the bubble to, for this conversation? Well, we want honesty. We want compassion. And we bring these things in. And it that little act, that little tool, as corny as it may sound, is really effective. Well, and you do the physical movements too, of drawing yeah. the bubble and throwing things out of the bubble and bringing things into the bubble. Yeah. There's There's power in that. As silly as it seems, it's that act of that movement that really brings that to, to light that yeah. it's a silly little thing, but I, 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 you know, try it listeners, try it. Let us know how it works. Yeah, do do. Cause it's good. One other thing that Eli brought up was just this expectations mm. piece. And I thought that was particularly relevant given COVID some of the conversations we've had with Brad Shuck and others I think even in normal times, the expectations that we hold of each other can be so over the top sometimes. We we believe that our spouse should be a mind reader, that they should understand us Wait, down to this core level. They aren't mind readers? I thought, <laughs> I thought our spouses were mind readers, at least for us. Well, yeah, that's that would be wonderful. Well, no, actually it wouldn't. Um, but it would be interesting, right? There is that concept of of expectations and making sure that we have realistic expectations and offering some grace. I think that's one of the things that Aaron and I that we have done really well is that we give each other grace. If we see that the other person is in a stressful place, we'll, we'll, we'll back off. We, we, you know, it will be, I will try to do more of the things that she would normally do around the house to relieve some of that burden and to just give her, you know, if she snaps it, okay, I get it. You're in this, this, this place, same thing happens on the other side. And it's, a, it's amazing what that can do just having that sense of understanding where people, the context within which the other person is dealing and being able to show up for them at that point and, and setting expectations around that. That kind of grace leads to 
the conversation that says before before I even snap, I can say to Katie, I'm really on edge. Mm. I don't know why. I don't know what's up. I'm not sure what what the issue is, but I'm feeling really frustrated with the simple thing of trying to get this recipe put together and it's not, you know, the the broth isn't coming together right and I'm really irritated and I'm just afraid I'm going to take it out on the dog. We talk about being grumpy. Uh, uh and and we can actually even not just for ourselves like say, yeah, oh, I'm grumpy today, right? It's like you can go, you're grumpy today, aren't you? And and it's not taken it's okay negatively. They're go, you go, yeah, yeah, I guess I am. You know, I didn't even realize it, but yes, I'm I'm obviously short and some I don't know what's bothering me, but something is. Okay. And we give you that, then we give you that space, right? As as much as you need it, or come to you if you need that as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, All right. Groovers, thanks for hanging in with us on uh, on our uh, grooving session and, and hang around. Uh, I'll be with you in just a minute with a bonus track. Hey, Groovers, this is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. Our conversation with Eli Finkel reminded us that the basic programming in our brains is not well suited for the world we live in. Things that were super useful to our ancient ancestors when it came to making decisions in a simpler world just confound us today. Central to our discussion with Eli was the idea that expectations play a huge role in the degree to which our relationships work or don't work these days. It's not so much about having many or fewer expectations as finding the right balance or the equilibrium of the supply and demand curve, as Eli noted. Lastly, Eli brought up a perennial question asked by many men, but very few women, that we found particularly interesting. What would it be like if women had to do all the asking to get rejected repeatedly and that men would have to do all the responding? (laughs) We'd love to hear your thoughts about that one. Okay, so your groove idea for the week is to consider what you're doing to balance the expectations you have of your relationship. Are you asking too much of this partner? Are they asking the right amount of things from you? It's a more complex question than Roy Baumeister's rule of four, where you just need to do or say four nice things for every one bad thing for your partner to make it work. But that makes this assignment more meaningful. Give it some thought and let us know what you think. That wraps up another episode of Behavioral Grooves, and we hope you enjoyed it. This week, we hope that you are well, you're making the most of your relationship, and that you keep on grooving.